You're listening to Rounding at Rush, a Rush University Medical Center podcast that features the latest clinical advances, research, and innovations. I'm your host, Dan Dean. Our guest today is Dr. Nipa Patel, a neurologist in the Rush University System for Health and the director of the Movement Disorder Interventional Program in the Department of Neurological Sciences. Her interests include improving the quality and delivery of care for patients receiving deep brain stimulation and education to improve the utilization of new therapies in movement disorders. She is part of the Rush team caring for essential and Parkinsonian tremor patients with MR-guided focused ultrasound and incisionless treatment designed to reduce hand tremor. Dr. Patel, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. Could we start our conversation today talking about how and when you use DBS? Who is an ideal candidate to receive this treatment? Deep brain stimulation is a pacemaker-like device that we implant into patients. And there's a slew of indications of which I'm going to focus on movement disorders. So we are starting to explore its use in depression and obsessive compulsive disorder as well, but it's a little bit outside of my expertise. Oh, and epilepsy as well. With regards to deep brain stimulation in in movement disorders, there are kind of three key demographics that we use this for. One is a patient with tremor, whether that be essential tremor or Parkinsonian tremor. These are patients who have severe enough tremors that are causing some degree of limitation or disability in their day-to-day lives and cannot be managed with medications alone. We also treat patients with Parkinson's disease um, that are more advanced and are having trouble finding the optimal dose of medications to sustain good, meaningful symptom control throughout the day. So we refer to this as motor fluctuations. And that may mean that their Parkinsonian medicine, specifically levodopa, runs out too quickly on them or doesn't work as effectively and predictably as it used to. Another side effect of these medications in Parkinson's is the development of dyskinesias. Those are the twisting, turning, wiggling movements that develop later in the disease progress. And deep brain stimulation can help to stabilize the predictability and stability of the medication, but also suppress those dyskinesias, which helps us take care of our patients as they go through the advancing disease. And the last major indication for deep brain stimulation is treatment of dystonia. This is a rare disorder that causes um, abnormal contractions of muscles that result in twisting and posturing of various body parts that can be very painful and limiting to patients. If these patients cannot be managed with uh, medications and botulinum toxin therapies, then they will often move towards deep brain stimulation as well. Based on the introduction, we talked about your involvement with MR-guided focus ultrasound as a, another treatment option available for, for people with essential and Parkinsonian tremor. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but just wondering how you determine when to use DBS versus MR-guided focus ultrasound with certain patients. That is a great question. Deep brain stimulation is a traditional brain surgery. And when we are considering these certain patients for a surgical intervention, they may have medical conditions, um, heart disease or various other things that increases their risk of surgery. They may also have other complicating factors such as bleeding disorders or a need to stay on anticoagulation that make it hard to perform 
traditional neurosurgery. So those patients, focused ultrasound is a really great option because we can do the surgery without essentially needing to probe the brain and damage it in any way. Now, there are some limitations in that bleeding disorders are higher risk and they still do need to stop some of their blood thinners and various other things, but a shorter period of time with a lower risk. Now, there are some tremor patients that are only affected on one hand and are nervous or anxious about doing deep brain stimulation or have a milder tremor that doesn't warrant the full surgery as of yet. And so focused ultrasound is a really nice option for those patients. The risk of neurological complications can increase when we start doing both-sided surgeries. So we're exploring these in patients who did really well with their first side with no residual neurological complications, and we're trying to study this in a little bit more detail. So it's not ready for all patients everywhere, but in select cases, we are starting to consider them. So that's a great transition to my next question, which is about Mm -hmm. metrics, Um, either here uh, at Rush or in general. Can you talk about how much DBS care can improve patients' quality of life? And relatedly, can you talk about safety and efficacy data as well? Absolutely. So this is an established therapy. I'll talk about deep brain stimulation. Um, It's been around for now 20 plus years, a standard of care in the treatment of medication refractory tremors and Parkinson's and motor fluctuations of Parkinson's. So We have a lot of metrics in terms of outcomes, objective motor outcomes, scores, and blinded uh, randomized studies. And we also have objective patient-based quality of life outcomes measures. So in these days, most of us are not collecting them in a standardized fashion, but at Rush, we do still like to keep tabs on our patients and make sure that we're doing right and how to improve. So we're asking some patient-centered quality outcomes measures at the beginning of surgery with some follow-up, not in a systematic standardized way, which is what I'm hoping to transition into moving forward. But it is there, and most of it is patient-reported outcomes. And what we notice is that there's a period of time where our patients have a dramatic improvement especially in Parkinson's with deep brain stimulation, but the disease keeps progressing. So as time progresses, there are some things that DBS does not treat. And so their quality of life might decrease because now we're getting out of the therapeutic window of DBS per se. Okay. So now that we know who DBS is ideally geared for and Mm. how it can be effective, can you talk about the DBS program at Rush and the offerings that we can provide patients? Sure. The deep brain stimulation program here at Rush, I think there's a few very specific options that set us apart from our other centers. One is uh, that we work in a very comprehensive multidisciplinary team-based approach. So we have several neurologists that refer into the program and manage the patients in the post-operative period. And what we do is we have Almost every center has patients undergo neuropsych testing and uh, MRI review and works with one or two neurosurgeons. Um, And what we do is we gather as a team and we discuss each patient and we talk about the pros and cons of where we should implant the patient strategies for having a more successful surgery. And then the neurologist will take care of them individually post-op. Then what we do is there's an opportunity if we're not getting the results that we'd hoped for to bring the patient back to that same team-based approach to troubleshoot and address any issues. And this 
gives feedback to our neurosurgeon so that he can take that, learn from it for our next patients into the future, but also if we need to go back and move the electrode because it's not in the best position for them. Where the diagnosis changes, we might have to do what we call above and beyond surgeries, beyond what's kind of traditional care. And we can really start pushing the envelope on how we deliver care through this multidisciplinary team-based approach for care. Now, is that multidisciplinary approach common across hospital systems, or is this sort of a unique feature specifically at Rush? Every center has their own strategies for how they take care of patients. It is recommended by the national and international experts that we should be having team-based approach. The degrees in which teams talk to each other, both preoperatively and postoperatively, are different. So since I have joined, we have enhanced the discussion, enhanced the conversation, and really tried to take it from a individual communicating with the neurosurgeon to really the team sharing their ideas, sharing their experiences, because everyone comes from different training backgrounds, different expertise, um, and different you know years of experience in managing patients. And so we can really share our experience to take care of some of our patients that are non-traditional and out of the box and who still could benefit from this therapy. Our program is an evolution, but I do think that there's different degrees of engagement between these team-based approaches. Switching gears, Rush is the only center in Chicago to offer a sleep DBS where the patient receives DBS surgery under anesthesia. How does this differ from doing the procedure awake um, from a provider perspective? What do you see as both the pros and cons of this approach? That is a very good question. Historically and traditionally for the last 20 plus years, deep brain stimulation has been performed in the awake state where a Parkinson's patient specifically does not take any of their medicines that help manage their symptoms. And then they're in the operating room and we get real-time feedback from their brain and we listen to their neuronal activity to help guide where the electrode should be implanted. And then once the electrode is implanted, we do some test stimulation in the operating room to ensure that we're getting the results we want and not perceiving any side effects. As you can imagine, many patients uh, are anxious and nervous to be awake in the operating room and having been to experience that in real time. And particularly in our Parkinson's patients and especially our dystonia patients, it can become quite uncomfortable for them, mainly because uh, their disease state causes muscle rigidity and stiffness and a lot of extraneous movements. To have their head in a metal frame and bolted to a table for two, three hours can be quite anxiety provoking, but also uncomfortable for them in the operating room. So there has been a trend uh, throughout the United States and even in other countries to start exploring the role of a sleep DBS because our imaging technology has really advanced so that we can see certain nuclei in the brain, deep structures with a lot of clarity and detail. And the experience of neurosurgeons over the past 20 plus years has also taught them what approaches are better to get there. Here at Rush, about a year and a half ago, our neurosurgeon, Dr. Sani, started exploring the use of intraoperative CT in the operating room to guide his surgeries. And the advantage to the patients is that 
they are completely under anesthesia. So they are not awake. They are not uncomfortable. They're not remembering that experience. The negatives to that is that we don't get the real-time feedback from our patients to really see, hey, are we getting some unintended side effects from our stimulation? Or, you know, every individual is just built a little differently. You and I don't look the same and neither do our brains. And so we are taking the cumulative average of all the brains that the historical database that neurosurgeons have developed, but your perfect spot might be two millimeters away from where somebody else's perfect spot is. So we are losing a little bit of that individual clarity and detail. So that's the con of doing a sleep surgery. And so one of the things of why we're kind of enhancing the discussions in our multidisciplinary team meeting is we actually review the MRI data with the neurologist and with the surgeon. And we take the neuropsych input specifically related to anxiety to say, you know, this person we believe might not experience the awake surgery as well as that other patient, or maybe we need to work on their emotional state before we take them to surgery. If the imaging is very clear and our neurosurgeon feels that, you know, I think I can get there pretty good while they're asleep, then we can offer that to our patient. But there are some patients whose imaging doesn't really show that clarity of detail and we do not offer them the awake option. And a little bit of that has unfortunately taken some trial and error and us going through that. So we try to communicate to the patients um, both the risks of doing it asleep as well as the potential benefits and help them weigh in on what their preference is. If there are complications that arise um, where that perfect spot isn't hit, are there mm -hmm. ways to fix that postoperatively? There's ways to fix that um, postoperatively with programming. So there's also newer techniques and technologies that have been developed in deep brain stimulation that allow us to steer current into the direction we want. If we're two millimeters too much to the left, we can push it to the right. If we're two millimeters you know, too much to the right, we can push it to the left. So there is some ability to do that, which improves our ability to take care of the patients who are not in the perfect location. And the reality is sometimes our awake surgeries have their limits as well, and the lead doesn't end up exactly where we want it to. So it's not to say that the awake surgery is flawless, but all in all, we're just trying to get better and do better. A lot of times we can work around it with stimulation, and in rare cases, we have to take them back to the operating room and we have to move the electrode. We try to avoid it whenever we can, but if, if that means that that's what we got to do, then we talk to our patients and we move them. Rush also has the ability to do remote DBS programming. Mm -hmm. How might you use remote DBS programming? And like I asked you in the previous question, what do you see as the pros and cons of implementing this approach with patients? Remote DBS programming was first launched kind of near the beginning of this year, and we at Rush got an early opportunity before the rest of the country to start working with it. I feel like we all have a lot more experience with it and are kind of learning how to incorporate it into our practice. Some of the advantages of remote programming are that many of our patients travel many hours, hundreds of miles to come see us for appointments. And in the early phases of programming the DBS, sometimes the stimulation can be too much for the patient and they experience side effects or they're just not um, handling it as well as we hope. And so we need to adjust the parameters sooner rather than later. 
or we made a change and it was not the right change for them. And we can't tell always in the office, it takes a day or two for this programming to settle out and the stimulation to settle out for us to see the positive and the negative results of it. As a trainee where we didn't have remote programming or even a few years ago where we didn't have it, patients would just show up in your office and say, I'm doing terribly and we'd have to alter them and find time to do that. And so now what's nice is we can set up more frequent visits and the patient doesn't have to travel so far, which can be challenging for them. And we can log on to a secure portal, have a video chat with them, and then adjust or manipulate their device through Wi-Fi. And they can be, I believe, anywhere in the country from my understanding of it, though we've primarily used it in the Chicagoland and beyond area. The negatives of it is uh, a lot of our patients have movement disorders and have trouble navigating technology because they're older. So not everybody feels comfortable or confident to log on to the secure portal. It takes several steps. And so I have one patient in particular who goes to his local neurologist's office and the rep sets up the teleprogramming visits for him. So it can become a little cumbersome for some patients. The other is you don't get a full view of the patient. There's some degradation of video quality. So sometimes when you're fine tuning things, it's harder to assess. I make a lot of my patients walk when I'm programming them. So if they get too far away from the camera so that I can see their full walking, I lose signal. And then their device shuts off for a safety reasons. And so then we have to log back on and they're uncomfortable. So it's imperfect, but it's a great bridge in between in-person visits. So if I've got a great idea of what's going on and I know what I want to do for the next two, two, three sessions, we can set it up through remote programming. So despite some of those challenges, how are patients responding to the remote programming? They really like it. And what I've found is our younger patients who are more technologically savvy and those who are have difficulty getting to our office on a regular basis have really embraced it. And they're selecting this option over other devices. And there's three devices on the market. So only one of the devices offers this option and opportunity. I want to conclude our interview by talking about the research that Rush is doing around DBS care. Can you talk about either a couple of trends coming out of the current research or maybe where possible future research is headed in this area? So deep brain stimulation here at Rush, the focus of my at least uh, research interests are on really improving and optimizing a sleep surgery. This is still very new at Rush and still very new around the country. And we want to do better and we want to deliver comparable levels of care between the two methodologies. So selecting the right patient for this option for surgery and opportunities in the operating room and beyond for programming um, and getting feedback from our patients so that we can ensure that we're we can avoid a second surgery if possible. So uh, our neurosurgeon, Dr. Sani, is actually working on a protocol to get some feedback from the patient while they're under anesthesia. So he's doing some e-stims of the vocal cords to avoid speech complications, which is a common challenge that we run into, and also some e-stim of the limbs 
so that he can pick up as we're delivering stimulation through the electrode, he can pick up if patients are having side effects by lightning anesthesia without wakening them up. So this is still very new and he just did his first case. So I'm still learning about it as well. We are also doing a more systematic methodical approach to assessing both the motor outcomes as well as the quality of life and impression of surgery for both awake and asleep for our patients. So to circle back, even though it's standard of care and accepted, we want to make sure that we are seeing the quality differences between the two options of surgery to say, is one better than the other, or are they both equal? And we should offer them equally to patients to choose from versus driving our conversations to one methodology over the other. So those are probably the two biggest focuses right now here at Rush. And in the larger picture, of the community, we're looking at what's coming out of research with the companies and also some centers in the country are uh, just like cardiac pacemakers, where now uh, cardiologists don't have to program it. They can get sig signals from the heart and then adjust the pacemaking capacities. We're looking to do the same thing with the brain is capture signals in the brain and have the device have certain thresholds in which they adjust stimulation. There are some challenges with chronic stimulation and DBS where I think this could really be a game changer. I think we're a few decades away from implementing it, but i that's where the research is going and what we're looking forward to in the future. That sounds exciting. Well, Dr. Patel, thank you so much for a great conversation today. Really appreciate it. Great, thank you for having me again. And hearing all about our program. <laughs>